Hello and welcome to Prospect Lives. Each month, our family of seven writers discuss their differing views of modern life for Prospect magazine. Spanning a wide selection of society, their reflections provide a window into their particular worlds and an insight into how they navigate their way through the challenges that life throws at them. This dreary November, our lives writers seem to be wistful for the simpler things in life, kindness, community and good food. Tilly Lawless cherishes a relationship where a language barrier leaves no room for overthinking, while Sheila is moved by a play with a protagonist who is gentle and good. Alice Garnett is envious of the Italian approach to La Dolce Vita after a holiday to Umbria, while Alice Goodman relishes the return of choirs to her parish. But let's begin with Sarah Collins, who, like Alice Goodman, finds solace in a different kind of communal singing. It's a Friday evening. I look bedraggled and bizarre. I'm wearing a floaty black top, gym leggings and bright red trainers. I have no makeup on. I've spent so much of the day fretting that I haven't had a single thought to spare on my appearance. I go to meet my friend Andy for a drink, but I'm running terribly late and when I arrive I feel chaotic. We sit down and I'm telling Andy how excited I am to go to the infamous Taylor Swift themed club night later that evening when a friend messages to say that she can no longer make it and is offering up her ticket. Andy, a long time Swifty, is tempted. Neither Andy nor I should be going to Swift together. I shouldn't be going because I'm in the midst of a mental health relapse, struggling to sleep for more than a few hours a night, sucked into spirals of rumination, carrying a vague dread on my shoulders. Andy shouldn't be going because he has to pack his flat up to move its contents to Cambridge the following day. The removal van is arriving at noon. We decide to go, of course. It's the only fitting way to honour our last night in London together. Except I don't have time to go back to my flat and change, so our only option is to go to Andy's flat, pull together dinner from what's in his fridge and go straight to pre-drinks. We fall into hysterics when we realise that this means me rolling up to the event in my current deranged all-black attire. Swiftageddon is the kind of night where people solve their boldest looks. Glitter, sparkles, pink. Do I look cool in a Berlin sort of way? I ask Andy pleadingly. He looks sceptical. Kind of, from your knees upwards. I try to do something with my hair, but I don't have any products, and it ends up looking worse than when I started. We wolf down some pasta and pick up a bottle of Sainsbury's Basic Gin on the way to the tube. It feels like we're at university again. I catch sight of my reflection in a shop window. I feel so ratty, I tell Andy. We're going on a rat night out, he agrees. I don't think many mental health professionals would prescribe a rat night out as a treatment option for an OCD relapse. Staying out until 2am isn't generally advised. And on social media, where less bona fide sources of, of advice abound, achieving mental well-being is increasingly presented as a puritanical endeavour, with therapist influencers and lifestyle gurus advocating for strict regimes of journaling, yoga, meditation and exercise. For them, my rat night out plan would be sacrilege. Not so for Camilla Nord, Head of Mental Health Neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. In her new book, The Balanced Brain, which I reviewed for the last issue of Prospect, she examines the role of pleasure in mental health and finds the picture is far more complicated than the wellness influencers would have us believe. Things you might consider bad for your health, eating sugar, drinking beer, having a late night out, could all have short or even long-term positive effects on mental health, she writes. 
Each of these bad view things represents one of the myriad ways of tapping into your brain's various systems for supporting mental health. It was with this wisdom in mind that I headed guilt-free to Swiftgeddon, which describes itself as a night run by fans for fans to come together and worship at the altar of Taylor Swift. Thankfully, at pre-drinks, our host Tegan had given me a pink glitter for my face and a floral maxi skirt, so I blended in with the crowd, dancing, laughing and screaming lyrics in an outpouring of collective joy. The next day, I had a mild hangover. But I also had the memory of this joy, which gave me the jolt of motivation that I needed to begin the programme of mindfulness exercises that I call my OCD boot camp. And sure, that programme involves meditating, eating healthfully and getting plenty of sleep. But sometimes a rat night out is just the boost you need for your mental health. Just ask the neuroscientists. While Sarah lets loose on the dance floor with her friends, ignoring the advice of puritanical social media influencers, Gen Zia Alice Barnett is similarly questioning Britain's obsession with the grind while enjoying Aperol spritzes in Umbria. Jess Glynn blared as I boarded my flight to London Stansted. Suitcase in tow, I looked despondently for my assigned seat. This was the inevitable trip back to the UK that I'd been dreading since my first mouthful of cacio e pepe. I must now face the consequences of my summer fling, my dizzying, week-long love affair with antiquity, fresh pasta and, of course, hot waiters. I went away expecting nothing and have returned in love with Italy. And like all successful seductions, it's made me reconsider my relationship with Britain. Having experienced the leisurely approach to life in Italy, I found it hard to reconcile myself with my native country's both cultural and climatic coldness. Thanks to Britain's deeply entrenched Protestant work ethic, an ideology cemented during the Industrial Revolution that seems to underpin our obsession with hustling and the grind, We, as a nation, seem unable to relax. Our stiff upper lip is unwavering. To relax our muscles and embrace a leisurely life would be considered lazy and uncouth. This inexplicable sense of urgency is, of course, at its peak in the capital. In London, there is no such thing as relaxation. I went to a spa for my recent birthday and had one of the most invigorating sensory experiences of my life, but immediately emerged into Soho, where soot and sex shops abound. Eve Babbitts, 1970s author and party girl, wrote of New York, There are no spaces between the words. It's one of the charms of the place. Certain things don't have to be thought about carefully because you're always being pushed from behind. She could have easily been describing London because in a city of infinite variety and energy, it is impossible to stop, and the currents are far too strong for my feeble frame. In Italy, however, they seem to indulge in the day. Pleasure and leisure feel like core cultural principles, particularly in Umbria, where my friends and I spend much of our time. Lunch breaks can last for hours, Museum workers usher you out so that they can leave not one minute after closing, and rightly so. This is not a tool to suggest that Italy is a lazy country. The time, energy and craft they devote to their food outshines anything the UK could possibly accomplish. We are in far too much of a rush to focus on the details. 
At one restaurant, in one of the many plazas we lunched in, the chef slash owner came over to us bearing a truffle. He mimed a grating motion and said a few familiar words like bofala and flamaggio. We nodded politely, unsure on what was going on, and he emerged five minutes later with a spectacular platter of creamy mozzarella. I cannot stress enough how delicious this was. The chef, an older gentleman who flitted between the kitchen and the patio for cigarette breaks, came out to see how we were finding his masterful concoction of truffle, garlic and fresh Italian cheese. We nodded enthusiastically and he explained that his restaurant was in fact the only place we could eat this dish. It was his brainchild. And how could anyone go back to the UK after that? My relationship with my home country has soured. I have returned from Italy to confront a stale marriage with a homeland towards which I feel growing resentment. A reasonable proportion of this resentment is rooted in Brexit, a reckless political play and a referendum that I, as a 16-year-old, had no say in. People talk dreamily of their years spent in mainland Europe, working in Germany or nannying in Spain. While living abroad is still a possibility, to do so in the majority of Europe now requires mountains of paperwork and hoops to jump through that exist directly as a result of Brexit. I don't usually get political in my writing, I'm lazy and a bit of a coward, but the fact that my generation had no say in an enormous political decision, one the British population knew so little about when the referendum took place, boils my piss. And I know this sounds dramatic, exactly like something a snowflake would say, but sometimes it feels as though I'm on a sinking ship where resources are dwindling, hope is fainting, and the captain has thrown away the key. Escaping to the rest of Europe, even just for a few years, isn't as easy as it once was. Between the Tory government and the pandemic, I feel I have lost so much in the way of time and opportunities usually afforded to people in their 20s. How am I supposed to make the most of this period of my life when so many doors have been seemingly glued shut by my predecessors? In a world in chronic crisis, sometimes it can be hard to believe that there is goodness anywhere. For Sheila Hancock, a play written by a friend was a moving reminder of the kindness in the world. There is the taste of blood in my mouth. The inside of my lower lip is bitten through. My know-all watch is constantly telling me that my heartbeat is dangerously irregular. Obsessively watching on TV the unspeakable cruelty engulfing the people of Israel and Gaza, I am in despair. Last week, in the midst of this horror, out of loyalty to a dear friend, Jenna Russell, I went to the theatre to see her latest musical show, Flowers for Mrs. Harris. It's the story of a cleaning woman who falls in love with an exquisite Dior dress that she sees in a client's wardrobe. She decides she must have one of these beautiful works of art in her life. On her quest to obtain the dress, Mrs. Harris, played with heartbreaking simplicity by Jenna, meets many people and her kind and caring nature gently transforms their lives. I went with my tough 
cancer-surviving daughter, and we both spent two and a half hours weeping uncontrollably. Weeping not from grief, but because we were witnessing human beings being gentle and loving. Sentimental nonsense, I would expect myself to think, or as Marx said of religion, it is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Yes, bring it on, heart and soul. I want some of that, please. And it is to be found, if you look, Sheila, sometimes in unexpected places. Yesterday, I was in Brixton Prison. I went with two women, full of heart, who run an organisation called the Liberty Choir, which goes around the country working with groups of prisoners to get them talking and singing. I suspect the motivation for some of the attendees is to get out of the grotesque cells built for one person that they share, banged up sometimes for 23 hours a day because of lack of guards to get them out. I asked a group of them if the sun shone in the pitiful yard where, if they are lucky, they walk round in a circle. I was told it didn't. But they all knew the exact time every day it shines through the windows in their cells. I inquired of one prisoner how much more of his sentence he had to do, and he said 1,160 days, which was the only way he could bear to count the time he had left in this hellhole. Whatever these men and women have done, most frequently because of drugs or mental health problems, we should at least house them in a civilised fashion, not alternately frozen or suffocating in mouse-ridden boxes for eating and shitting. A bleak nightmare of indifferent neglect. But for the practical kindness of these stalwart liberty women and their team of helpers, They not only cheer up the prisoners weekly, but they are there for them when they come out, blinking and confused, often into a blank future. Despite dire warnings about loads of criminal immigrants supposedly swamping our country, I have seen communities welcoming Ukrainians and other refugees with great kindness I have been the length and breadth of the country on a book tour and discovered that for every ranting extremist the news camera has managed to dig up, there are thousands of people organising refugee events, literary festivals, running charities, manning lifeboats, clearing letter, rescuing abandoned animals, you name it, there's a volunteer organisation dealing with it. For every person incited into violence, there is an army of people quietly getting on with being good. In the midst of stories of inhuman savagery, it is well to remember that. It has taken me some time to adjust to the changed attitude towards me now that I am old. Mostly, I'm overlooked. I go into a restaurant with younger folk, The waiter seldom addresses me directly. And what would she like? 
It cost me a large flamboyant tip when I revealed that not only am I capable of ordering my meal, but I am the one paying and generous with it. The first time someone offered me a seat on the tube, my blood ran cold and I laughingly rejected their kindness. Now I would grab their hand off. If they tenderly call me my love, I don't feel patronised, just grateful for their affection. I will accept a supporting arm and my suitcase being put in the overhead locker with gratitude. I relish the kindness of strangers. Let us pray that whatever excesses, injustice or rage incites us to, our innate reason and compassion will eventually hold sway. I'm Ellen Halliday, and for this week's Prospect Podcast, I've been speaking with Priyamvada Gopal, who has written an in-depth article on the fate of the humanities in the context of their role in university studies. The very fact that politicians and authoritarians feel the need to interfere with the teaching of history, of literature, of sociology, of critical race theory, of decolonization, that tells us that at some level, the humanities are threatening to people who don't want certain kinds of connections to be made and who don't want a citizenry armed with a nuanced understanding of history. So follow and subscribe to the Prospect Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Farmer Tom is feeling abandoned by all the UK's political parties and he believes that many farmers, who have traditionally felt represented by the Conservative Party, feel politically homeless. Since 2016, any social media post I've made sharing the hardship of modern farming has typically been met with the response, well, you farmers voted for Brexit, so that's what you get. My auto-response is that farmers voted in line with their demographic. Farmers are, on average, older than the general population, and older voters were more likely to vote leave. The average age of a farmer in the UK is 59 years old, compared with around 40 for the UK as a whole. In 2016, I was in my mid-30s and voted, like many my age, to remain. My vote was less about political ideology and more about an inherent passion for unity. But that passion for unity has left me feeling politically homeless of late. In the post-Trump era, name-calling, point-scoring and bickering has replaced debate, reason and compromise. The extremes have torn the centre ground apart. Whether it's a Labour frontbencher describing Conservatives as homophobic, racist, misogynistic scum, the daily political name-calling of Captain Hindsight or Blamange Prime Minister, or a poll in 2019 indicating that 48% of Conservative voters say that they feel some disgust towards Labour voters, I'm turned off by divisive derision deflecting from discussion on important issues. You know, the things that actually matter. Farmers, in general, have for a long time found their home in the Conservative Party, but this Parliament has been the very definition of Shakespearean tragedy, characterised by death and disaster, and, for British farmers, disrespect. From Therese Coffey's rambunctious Let Them Eat Turnips performance at the National Farmers Union, the NFU conference earlier this year, when she was quite rightly booed after displaying a staggering lack of interest 
in the UK agriculture through to seemingly unscrutinised trade deals with Australia and New Zealand undercutting local produce. And then there's Jacob Rees-Mogg, who, let me remind you, represents a rural Somerset seat, recently issuing another body blow at the Conservative conference in Manchester, saying, I want hormone-injected beef from Australia. All this and much more leaves UK farmers who produce food under high environmental and animal welfare standards, including a nationwide ban on hormone injections since 1989, feeling less understood than ever before. As for Labour, I welcome the fact that Keir Starmer has been the first Labour leader in over a decade to speak at the NFU conference and the first ever to write in Country Life, but with a lack of clarity on what the party's policy will be on important issues such as seasonal labour, it's really hard to feel the love. The Liberal Democrats have been making noises of late with Ed Davey looking more at home in the Instagram-friendly barber-clad promotional photo shoots than Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer. The Yellow Rosettes have recruited former NFU Deputy President Stuart Roberts as a forceful advocate for food farming and rural life. As possible kingmakers in a future parliament, they could punch above their weight, but for now their influence is confined to local politics. The Greens, who in many other countries partner well with farmers, seem to be keen to interfere from suburbia with their food and agricultural policy, which includes a long list of principles and commitments peppered with words such as restrict, reduce, control and regulate. As a farmer and environmentalist, I'm disappointed that this party in particular offers little for me. And lastly, with the SNP constantly shouting about another referendum, the less said here the better. Nigel Farage, despite his penchant for real ale and wax jackets, is another non-starter. Which leaves me, and many others, judging by farmers' WhatsApp groups, social media and feedback from meetings, politically homeless. And a little weary. I invite all council and parliamentary candidates to the farm and have had conversations with party players from across the spectrum. But still, I'm not sure where to put my ex. British farmers hold the keys to the UK's net zero aspirations, are at the steering wheel in delivery of clean air and water targets and steward around 71% of the UK land area that will be important in the mission to improve biodiversity. All these elements are rated as extremely important to UK voters and one would think that politicians would be fighting to bring us on board. Voters care about farming and the countryside. And following a recent appearance on BBC Countryfile, I know that viewers do too. I feel the love, just not from our politicians. We move now from politics to sport, as sports journalist Emma John celebrates the demise of the sporty girl standard and relishes enjoying games as a girl who just wants to have fun. At the school I went to, two decades ago now, being good at sport afforded you levels of popularity no other field of achievement could touch. There were a number of reasons for this, the most obvious being the physical glamour of the sporty girl. She typically boasted a lean, lithe figure and long ponytailed hair, assets considered aspirational to many of the rest of us. She was also a natural nexus of school pride – the lacrosse, swimming and athletics teams enjoyed far more frequent fixtures than the orchestra or drama club, and the outcome of Tchaikovsky's serenade didn't offer the chance to lord it over a much-loathed local rival. 
sporting victories raised the status of those involved, whether they captained the netball team or got selected for county tennis trials. At my school, these things were all achieved by the same person. Our all-star athlete, we'll call her Billie Jean Joyner-Kersey, was such a celebrity that her eventual election to head girl was a formality. I thought of her recently when I read that the UK government is launching a new investment accelerator for women's sport. The scheme is inspired by British and English successes on the pitch, such as the Lionesses' unprecedented World Cup run this summer, and designed to optimise commercial opportunities in a rapidly growing sector, which is industry speak for make more money, and useful if it helps to close the yawning pay gap between male and female professional athletes. The goal of gender equality remains so distant that we need every kick we can get in that direction. It's the elite game we think of first when we hear talk of women's sport. But one of the most significant shifts I've witnessed in this field has been a social one. When I was growing up, the divide between the sporty girl and the unathletic one was absolute. In my understanding, physical prowess was a gift bestowed on only an elite few. The rest of us were not meant for games. Before this sounds like mere self-deprecation, I've checked my theory with a number of friends and almost every one of them still remembers the name of the sporty girl at her school. They described her in just the language I might have used for Billie Jean. She seemed to be made of different stuff than me, said one of my friends. Like her body was made of elastic and mine was made of sausage meat. None of us were truly incapable of physical activity. I had always enjoyed bouncing around on the netball court when I was at primary school. At home, my excess teenage energy was expressed in the living room in bouts of incoherent dancing. But PE lessons were like a New Testament parable. The sheep winnowed from the goats by dint of their easy hand-eye coordination and their naturally quick reflexes. Those of us who were as often hit by the ball as hitting it were soon discouraged and looked for ways to hide our inadequacies. One of mine was to take up a strategic position behind the lacrosse goal, in the knowledge the ball would never reach me back there. No child can be good at everything, and it shouldn't matter if they're not any good at anything. For women of my generation, the idea that sport was only for those who excelled was instilled in us before we could even articulate it. The figure of the sporty girl is, presumably, a contributing factor to the notoriously high dropout rate in sporting participation when girls hit puberty, part of the conditioning that feeds into wider issues of societal expectations and body image. A recent survey by the Youth Sports Trust reported that one of the most common reasons girls gave for not wanting to take part in PE was a lack of confidence. But change is coming. If London 2012 had any kind of legacy, it was in our consumption and perception of women's sport. The Olympics weren't just a celebration of the athletes, but the activities themselves, with the message that sport was available to all, not just those with a good throwing arm or a steady putting hand. 
Clubs and councils are recording an uptake in numbers, not just from girls, hooray, but also from women like me, who have never felt comfortable on a court or pitch before. Call it the rise of the girl who wants to have fun, even if she's never felt sporty in her life. For Alice Goodman, returning to singing after a break during the pandemic has made her appreciate the joy of it even more. Once upon a time, David Hoyle was a boy chorister at the parish church of St. John the Evangelist, Blackpool. This David Hoyle isn't the present Dean of Westminster, but the other, the legendary performance artist, the divine David. In those days, St. John's was the civic church of Blackpool, Protestant but traditional, with a robed choir. The vicar was Hugo Ferdinand Duval, later principal of Ridley Hall and Bishop of Thetford, whom I once heard described unkindly as the dullest bishop in East Anglia. He can't have been that dull, since he was responsible for the entertainers' service, where all the great names in music hall and stand-up were honoured. Did they sing for you? I asked. No, we sang for them. For the children, it was utterly thrilling. Ken Dodd is here. I know this story because David told it to me. He's never forgotten Hugo Duval's kindness, nor the excitement of the entertainer's service. I reaped the benefit when David asked me a few years ago to write and record some audio pieces to be played towards the end of his show at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. That was what got me back into writing. For most of the 20th century, there was a choir in every church. In the Wilbrahams, you could, if you liked, sing with the parish church in the morning and the Baptists in the afternoon. Then, about 20 years ago, choirs dwindled. This wasn't helped locally by an incumbent who wanted a worship band composed entirely of born-again Christians. The churches switched from hymns, ancient and yet more ancient, as it's known, to songs of fellowship, which I think I can say without caveat is the worst hymn book I've ever encountered. To do it justice, the intention is that nobody will actually use the book. The lyrics will be projected onto a screen. But we did use the book. No music. Tiny print. And with songs like the fruity song and Lord, you put a tongue in my mouth. When the singing stopped during the pandemic, it seemed as though we suddenly started appreciating what we were missing. I thought of the rainy evening in 2002 when I was sent to preach to a tiny congregation of elderly Methodists and found that they filled the building with spontaneous four-part harmonies. I thought of school children belting out harvest songs and Christmas carols. Fast forward to now, and our parish assistant asked everyone to make an embroidered or appliqued square for a wall hanging to tell a story about the pandemic. There were three sections, what we endured, what we were grateful for, and what we hoped for the future. Mine was for the third part and showed a choir. They were wild, brightly coloured singers in fancy hats, crowded onto eight inches of muslin. Singing together is good for you. 
but it's also one of the most profoundly human things we do, and we seem to do it less and less. During that time, when the only singing we had was our curate, Miles, caroling from the top of the church tower on Ascension Day, I set my heart on a new parish choir and a new community choir to go with it. We applied for funding. There were hiccups and grumbles. Not everyone in the congregation liked it at first. But the proof was in the pudding. More people come to church on our three choral Sundays every month than on the vernacular music Sunday, when our band, two guitars and a piano, plays old-fashioned revival hymns and gospel music. Songs of Fellowship has vanished without a trace and without a faculty. Best of all, there's a growing group of trebles. We pay them 50 pence for every choir practice and service, and we give them pizza. Singing has to compete with all the other things a child might be doing on a Wednesday evening or a Sunday morning, so it has to be fun. And yet it seems to me that one of the things that the children enjoy most is the knowledge that their singing is important to the worship of the church. I like to drop by their practice on a Wednesday evening. There's absolute concentration as they stand around the piano, some of them barely able to see over it. There's serious senior chorister S and tiny O, and A, who as an infant screamed for 40 minutes solid at his baptism. There's J, who wears pink and purple and rainbows and glitter, and pretends not to pay attention, but sings everything note perfect on the drive home. Maybe we're raising up another David Hoyle. Vauxhall or Westminster. Either would be good. I hope that when I die, the whole village will be singing. For sex worker Tilly Lawless, ironically, a language barrier has simplified rather than complicated a romantic relationship. Over the years, a lot of my brothel clients, especially the East Asian and Southeast Asian ones, have been non-English speakers. I've grown accustomed to having sex with men whose only phrases to me are no English, sleep, directing me to lie down, doggy, another direction, and thank you, good service. Often I find the silence we lie in together after and around the sex restful. There's no pressure for me to prattle, ask them about their life, feign interest in their interests. Sometimes we'll have a haphazard chat over a translation app, but most of the time they're happy to just be together, skin against skin. Body language is enough to navigate the half hour or hour we spend together. I'm a words person though, and in my friendships and relationships, I had thought that my humour and charm rested on the way I use them. It has only been through slowly learning a second language in adulthood and having to accept feeling like a child in it in some ways, unable to express exactly what I want to express, reaching for the right word and being unable to find it, looking for new ways to describe something that in English I would have moved to instinctively, that I've accepted that my personality is also in my mannerisms, my gestures, the tone in which I speak. I knew this about other people, that it's often the way someone speaks, as much as what they say, that makes them compelling. But it took experiencing it for me to realise that my wit wasn't entirely in my word choice, that I could make someone laugh across the barriers of language and culture, that I could land a joke without wordplay. Recently, I've been flirting with someone in my private life across a language barrier, 
And when we message each other, I feel as if I'm communicating in hieroglyphics, as we express things to each other largely in emojis and GIFs. I've always thought a language barrier in dating would be impossible to breach. How can you really know each other when that stands in the way? Surely you need a strong base of verbal communication to build on. Maybe that is still true for very serious relationships, where you want to see if your life plans and values are compatible for the future. But for the initial stages, for something nice and casual, when I'm still grieving the loss of a friend and I'm unable to emotionally commit to anything sustained, I found that the language barrier releases me from interrogating meaning. I'm used to endless conversations with other women about what we mean to each other, where we're going, where we're at, an inescapable arubarese of analysis that eventually, and exhaustingly, becomes just conversations about conversations. With her, there's no point discussing any of that because it would be too confusing for both of us. Instead, I have to take everything at face value. Do we have fun when we're together? Yes. Do I want to see her again? Yes. They're the only questions that I can pose and answer. It's also freed me from obsessing over word choice and messages, both my own and the other person's. Shared language gives us the illusion that we know someone, that we understand their thought processes and can predict their behaviour. But the reality is that people can still be opaque to us, even with the same language. You never really know what is going on in someone else's head. I've spent hours of my life crafting the perfect message, hoping to elicit a certain emotional response or to gain clarification or closure. And even when I've combed over word order and choice, shifting this and replacing that so the words are as accurate an expression of my mindset as possible, they still have interpreted them in ways that I've been unable to predict or have responded in ways that have confounded me. With her, I've let all of that go, embraced a not knowing that actually exists in all relationships and feel like I've achieved something when I make her laugh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prospect Lives. Join us next month as we discover what trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs our writers have experienced. And if you enjoyed this episode of Prospect Lives, I'm sure you'll enjoy Media Confidential with me, Alan Rusbridger, alongside Lionel Barber, the former editor of the Financial Times. We take you behind the headlines, beyond the clickbait, to uncover the real facts behind the story. A new episode is out every Thursday, so be sure to subscribe and follow Media Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Prospect Lives is brought to you by Prospect Magazine and produced by Martin Points Roberts on Fresh Air. And produced by Martin Points Roberts for Fresh Air. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.